are continuing a few more sermons left in our series on God's desire for the church. And we started out with sort of God's cosmic purpose for the church, this incredible purpose that we have. And we, uh, well, we hit some fairly tough topics like that he wants us to be free from our shame and that he wants us to engage in the ministry of reconciliation and therefore be intercessors. And uh, some of those are pretty heavy sort of emotional sermons, aren't they? And uh, so I thought I'd lighten it up today and talk about money. Uh, <laughs> it's always a crowd pleaser. You know, I thought I'd pick a nice simple text like uh, Luke 16, 1-9, the shrewd steward. Anybody here know the parable of the shrewd steward? You know what I'm talking about when I say that, the shrewd steward? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Anybody who's looked into that, what is he talking about? Why is Jesus commending this dishonest scoundrel who's ripping off his boss? So yeah, I thought I'd just, you know, pick something easy today. But uh, let's just open up in prayer before we see what the Holy Spirit has for us. Father God, uh, this, uh, sometimes your word is difficult, and so we look to your scripture to interpret your scripture, and we look for the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to guide us. And so Father, as we come and we engage in what you would desire for your church and what you would desire for us, we know that our entire life belongs to you, including our possessions. And so we want to study this and know this uh, because this is what you talk about in your word. And so we don't avoid any of it. So, Father, just uh, give me uh, wisdom and clarity as I speak and uh, pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, pour out upon us as your family and uh, would open our eyes and our hearts to what you would teach us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll start with the text in Luke 16. And uh, it is the parable that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Luke has gathered together several items of Jesus' teaching here in terms of money. And uh, we're going to try to unpack what God's economy is as opposed to our economy. And what Jesus might be saying as he tells this story and teaches his disciples through it. He said, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. And I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Wow. Seems a little weird, eh? It's not like Jesus' other parables. Who's the master? Who's the servant? 
why is he doing what he's doing and why does Jesus, both Master and, the G- and Jesus, say that this guy's doing the right thing when he's apparently defrauding his boss out of money that people owe him? Well, to understand it, I'm going to move around a little bit and then come back to it. Because to really understand what Jesus is talking about here, what you have to do is you have to move your frame of mind into understanding how God thinks about money and what God's economy is when his kingdom kind of intersects with ours. That we are now citizens of another kingdom. And there's two kingdoms that are always being talked about. And God's kingdom has a whole different economy. And we have to sort of understand that. And there's some tricky things to understand about that too as well. But once we understand how God's economy works and God's kingdom works, then you come back and you reread that and you say, now I get it. So that's what we're going to do. The first thing to keep in mind, really quick points about money that we understand that the scripture teaches us about money First thing is that it's powerful, right? Jesus teaches about money a lot because it's really important and it's really powerful. It's a critical theme in Scripture, right? And I think everybody knows that the Bible talks about money a lot, but maybe not as much as you think. Sixteen of the 38 parables that Jesus told were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, one out of ten verses, that's 288 One out of every ten verses deal directly with the subject of money in the Gospels. The Bible has 500 verses on prayer. It has less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So those are just some statistics to give you an idea that we don't talk about money because, you know, it's just this obscure thing that we have to deal with in our life. We talk about money because God's scripture keeps talking about money. And it's powerful, and it's important, and it's critical to our understanding of how we're going to live as Christians. The second thing to keep in mind is that it's practical. We need it. The church needs it to function, okay? In the Old Testament, God instructed his people to build a place of worship and service. First it was a tabernacle, and then it was a temple. And in fact, the people, when they came to give to the tabernacle or to the temple, as Moses was building the tabernacle, they gave so much that they had to be stopped, Moses told them, he put out a memo to everybody and said, stop giving money because we have too much to build what we need to build. That would be a great problem to have, trust me. Every pastor likes to preach on that. Am I scratching again? Oh, sorry. I hate, I hate to distract you. There we go. Okay, still not working. How about I lose 10 pounds? I'll, I'll get right on that. So it's practical. In the Old Testament, God said, build this place. Moses said, stop giving. You're giving too much. We have enough. You know, keep your money. Right? And then God instructed his people to support the ministries and the missionaries of that time. Right? The the Levites didn't have any land. They didn't have any property. People gave to support the Levites. And then the Levites gave to support the priests. And the Levites and the priests were the people who did the ministry and the service of God. Right? And you mentioned, I mentioned before when I I spoke on the, the spiritual gifts, how that no one was to come empty-handed into the temple or into the tabernacle, that they were to bring the oil and the bread or to bring oil, which was the spirit. And we talked about spiritual gifts. You remember people bringing their gifts to serve. They bring the Holy Spirit in the form of the oil and their spiritual gifts. And then also it says, uh, several places, but Deuteronomy 16, it says that when the young men come, 
uh, to the temple. They're not to appear before God empty-handed, but to bring a gift in proportion to how God has blessed you. So we bring the oil in the Holy Spirit, and we bring the bread, literally, uh, in our giving to the church. And that is how we are to approach God. That's the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, again, practically speaking, in the teaching of Jesus, we see that he wanted there to be an adequate number of Christian workers. He talks about how the workers are few and that the harvest is great, and he wants Christian workers. And then in Luke, when he's sending out the 72, he wants them to be supported. Um, How as they go forth, they're supposed to go to different homes and accept what's given to them. And so Jesus in the New Testament sees very practically, money is how things go. He knows that people need to eat. He knows that they need clothing. He knows that they need to travel. He knows that ministry is, is important. In the epistles in the New Testament, as you see the early church, money is an important thing. In Acts, it talks about the feeding of the widows and the poor and how there had to be uh, service for that, but then also provision for these people. And uh, in Acts 11, Paul is collecting money for Jerusalem. So he's going around from church to church because there's a need for the church in Jerusalem, and he's collecting money to send back to Jerusalem. And in 1 Corinthians 16, he talks about how we set aside money weekly for provision in the church. And then in 2 Corinthians 8, a great text, which I'm not going to get into, sharing in the needs of the church equally so that none within the church do without, that they are giving as they are able, but not to give to the point of poverty themselves so that you give out of your wants so that you end up more needy than the person you're giving to, but to share everything equally. And then Philippians 4, Paul talking about the support of missions, which we're going to talk about a bit more. So this idea that money is just practical, it's powerful, yes, but it's also practical. Money, we all know we're capitalists and we're in uh, this uh, capitalist society. Money is the lubrication that makes you know, all of our trade work. And so we have to deal with the reality of money. And the scripture acknowledges that. The third thing, really quickly, is that it's temporary, right? The Old Testament, uh, the example that Paul actually uses in that 2 Corinthians text in 8 is the manna that God provided, that God pours out provision. He pours out resources for his people, but it's a temporary resource. You remember the manna, if they collected more than they needed for a day, it just rotted and disappeared. And wealth is like that too. Paul was making that reference in 2 Corinthians 8 that you gather in, but how many of you find that your money is temporary? right? (laughs) You gather all this money, you gather all this possessions, and then you realize it doesn't stay around all that long. It kind of is gone. If not the next day, then maybe a week later, or when your kid goes off to school, you know, the big chunk of it disappears then. But this idea that God's provision is temporary, that it disappears, that it's not something that lingers. And then Jesus, obviously the famous text in Matthew, When Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. And so Jesus hammers home the real temporary nature of wealth that we're talking about today, right? That we can't lay up treasures for ourselves on earth because it's temporary. Moth destroys it, it rusts, it disappears, it's gone. Eventually we leave it behind but instead store up treasure in heaven. The fourth point, which is where we're going to camp a little bit today, is that it's powerful, it's practical, it's temporary, but the wisest use of money in God's economy is to purchase heavenly reward or to invest in eternal consequences. And maybe this fourth point isn't as obvious, and it's the point that might 
brings some of us up short when we think about money. You're thinking, you know, okay, Paul, I get it. You know, money's powerful and it's enticing and it's, it's dangerous and it's, it's important and I've got to be careful of it. You know, I understand that it's practical and it's sort of a necessary evil. I got that. We, you know, we, we put up with money even though it is powerful and dangerous. You know, and I get the sense that it's temporary. I get that teaching. But now you're saying that the wisest use of money is to purchase eternal rewards? Like, really? Can it be that? Really, that's what it's for? Like, I'm supposed to buy myself benefits in heaven? Is that what you're saying, that I use money for? To understand that, we have to understand God's economy. The first thing we look at is what we just read that Jesus said. He said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. So if we're storing up treasure in heaven, it sounds like we can add to them, right? You have a little bit of treasure in heaven, and then Jesus says, store up more. So there's some treasure in heaven that some people have, and then other people maybe have more treasure in heaven. And this is sort of the first item of God's economy that you have to sort of get your head around, that it took me a while to get my head around, because I just thought, well, heaven is the treasure, right? I get to heaven, and that's it. Payday, right? Sort of the Christian, just get to heaven, get to Jesus, treasure. Yes, and this is where we don't fully understand it. This is one of the mysteries, but there's reward in heaven. That in heaven, there's a reward beyond even just heaven. That Jesus says that we can lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, multiple, plural treasures for ourselves, and we can lay them away. We can build on the treasures that we have. And I'm not going to try and explain that mystery per se as much as just convince you that it's a truth that's a reality in Scripture. And if it's a truth in Scripture, then we have to deal with it. And it's not just this text, right? It's more than just this text that I hang my hat on for why we have rewards in heaven. It's actually very consistent. Jesus also says things like in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, don't put on display all this good thing that you're doing and say, hey, look at me, look at my prayers, or look at, look at how I'm giving, or look at what a great helper I am in the church. Because he says, that'll be your reward. You, you, you're forfeiting a reward in heaven if you put your righteousness on display before other people. He also says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So Jesus is talking about this reward in heaven. Not just once, lots of times he talks about it. Or there's the parable of the servants and the coins. You remember that one? God gives a coin to ten servants. He only talks about three of them. But the three of them he talks about, one of the servants takes one coin, makes ten. The other one takes one coin, makes five. The other servant doesn't do anything with his coin. He just buries it and gives back one coin. And when the nobleman returns, he rewards those who had multiplied the resources that were given to him. And so there is a reward for faithful service. I could go on and on about Jesus. So the first thing is look at what Jesus said about reward. The second thing is look at Paul explaining how giving works in the church with relation to his own ministry. And here's a key text for you in Philippians 4, 14 to 20. I can't remember if I put that one up. I think I forgot to, and I'm sorry. Philippians 4, 14 to 20. Just listen carefully. I'll read it to you. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. 
Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul saying here? He says not, first of all, he's thanking the Philippians that they gave. Thank you for entering in partnership with me in giving me to supply to my ministry. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That verse stopped me. What does that mean? They're giving money. Paul's doing ministry. The benefit, the reward, the fruit increases to the credit of the people who gave the money. Right? If I'm going to write a check every week, or my recommendation, you get signed up for direct debit, and uh, you know, you're going to give faithfully to the church, you're going to give faithfully to the ministry, what is this economic transaction? How does God's economy work? I want to understand how this works, and what is Paul talking about here? The second thing he talks about it is he says that the gifts are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But that fruit thing, that catches my attention because it increases to my credit when I give. And so the Apostle Paul here, what is he saying? The first thing is the fruit itself. There's three things that Paul says abound or increase to our credit as we give faithfully to ministry. The first thing is the fruit itself, the actual ministry results. The, you know, fruit is used a couple hundred times in the New Testament, the word fruit, and it's often a metaphor for the result of our Christian life. Uh, it's salvation. It's possibly the development of maturity. It talks about spiritual formation, uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our, in our lives, sanctification, our, our increasing Christ-likeness. The word fruit is used in all of those things, essentially all the outcomes of gospel ministry. could be salvation, could be maturity, could be the abundance of spiritual gifts manifesting themselves. And Paul uses the word fruit in all those ways. And so when he's using the word fruit here, he's meaning the fruitfulness of ministry, probably in all those ways. People are coming to Christ. People are being more mature. I'm able to teach. Uh, There's a manifestation of the spiritual gifts. Uh, There's the fruit of the Spirit coming out of my ministry. So fruit that abounds is all of this fruit. And it's interesting that Paul right now, as he writes to the Philippians, as Paul is writing this letter, he's in Rome bearing fruit. And he starts out his letter to the Romans by saying in 118 that he's been trying to get to Rome to bear fruit among them. And he finally does get there. He doesn't get to Rome how he planned to get there, but he finally does get to Rome. And when he got there, he's now bearing fruit. And he's commending the Philippians for their support of his ministry to bear fruit. That's the first thing. The fruit that is abounding to the credit of the Philippians is the fruit of Paul's ministry. All of these things, salvation, maturity, his teaching, all of those things. The second thing that is abounding to their credit that he talks about there is that fragrant offering that is pleasing to God in verse 18. That there is a fragrant offering that goes up to God from the giving to the ministry that God recognizes and God acknowledges. And the third thing is the faithfulness of God in responding to that offering. That Paul says that it abounds to your credit and that he is sure that this aroma going up to God, God will supply all your needs in Philippi. All you Philippians, God is going to bless you because of your giving. So there's an economy going on here. There's an economic transaction. This is how God's economy works, as Jesus has explained it and as Paul has explained it. That as we give, there is something actually happening here. 
in God's economy, in the church, that God rewards and pays back in heaven and on earth. The third thing that I want to do, we looked at the words of Jesus, we looked at Paul's description of what's sort of taking place within the church in his ministry as we give to ministry. The third thing is a personal example of God's reward and where we see this actually transpiring in the Bible. And this is such a cool story. I love this one. It's in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, and it's the example of Cornelius. And again, I'll read it to you. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. So here you have a guy. He's not a Jew. He is a Roman centurion, uh, and he's part of the Italian cohort there to guard uh, the town. And, uh, but he's seen the Jewish faith. He's seen this Hebrew God somehow. And he's come to a faith in his own way in God. And he has prayed faithfully and given alms to God. But he's not a Pharisee. He's not a scribe. He's not an Essene. He's not a Sadducee. He's, he's not a convert of any, in any way. He's not a Christian. He's not even following Jesus. But he is praying and giving alms generously And it says that your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Not just his prayers, but his giving. God has heard his prayers as he has prayed and as he has given. So I take this little story and I see it as just more confirmation of this economy that God has set up. That our giving is not inconsequential. God notices. And in fact... He wants to pay back and pour out blessing on us here in addition to heavenly rewards, fruit that is given, we are accredited for as the ministry that our dollars pay for as we give sacrificially. So don't underestimate the spiritual significance of giving. It's not just this sort of crass mercantile exchange that's necessary because of the world. It's not just this thing that we need to pay salaries and groceries and hydro bills. Giving sacrificially is a spiritual spiritual, worshipful endeavor. It's by our prayers and our service and our giving that we build the foundation that's laid in Christ. Whether it's a building of gold and silver and precious stones like the temple was, or whether we build something of hay and straw and wood that might get burned up, as another text which talks about this economy in 1 Corinthians says that all of our works will be tested by the fire and some will be burnt up like hay and straw and we will escape as one through the fire, leaving our works behind. What kind of works are we building in God's economy? We can invest the coins to return 10 or 5 or 0. That's our choice. How are we investing in God's kingdom? And we suffer loss or reward as we do so. We don't have to fully understand how it works. I don't get it. said it before, say it again. I don't understand the concept of rewards in heaven. I don't know if you're just closer to the throne or whether, you know, you get a bigger boat to sail around the new Mediterranean in. I don't know what the rewards in heaven are. 
I honestly don't know. But there are rewards in heaven, and I don't have to understand it. I just have to know it's true because Scripture tells me it's true. I don't really understand how selling short on margin is used to cover the risk on buying a long buy on dividend stocks either. But the stockbrokers get it, and I trust God way more than I trust my brokers. So I don't have to understand how the stock market works to invest in it. And I certainly don't have to understand fully how God plans to reward us in heaven in order to invest. Because I definitely trust God more than I trust my broker. If I'm going to invest, I'm going to invest in God. If I'm going to invest, I'm going to invest in rewards that moths don't eat and rust doesn't destroy, and I don't end up having to leave behind in a pine box anyway. Rewards that are going to be there for me in the future forever with God. So if money is powerful and it's practical and it's temporary, but it's useful for heavenly rewards, if that's now our understanding of God's economy, as we let Scripture interpret Scripture for us, if this is what Scripture from Old Testament to New teaches us, if that's how it works, what light then does that shed on what parable we're looking at, what Jesus started with saying? What is Jesus teaching in this parable? Is it really as wrong as it seems to sound? And so we walk through it again now. What is happening here is that there is a man who is, has a master, and the master here, you have to understand, is the world, okay? He is a steward of the world's resources, and the world is going to fire him. He's going to be gone from this world eventually. The master has said, you're not going to manage these resources anymore. And so the man says, I'm going to get fired from my access to all these resources. What am I going to do with them? Well, I'm going to use these resources as long as I still hold the position that I have. I'm going to use these resources for my benefit. I mean, that's the smart thing to do. And Jesus says, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You Christians don't get it. You only are going to be stewards in this world for so long. You're only going to actually have resources to the things you have, access to the things that you have for a short time. So how are you going to use them? Use this unrighteous worldly wealth to purchase righteous and heavenly rewards. Because we're going to be fired from this job. And we will no longer have our paychecks to manage. And we will no longer have the opportunity to spend them wisely to earn friends for ourselves in our next job in the kingdom of heaven. And so we should at least be astute as this manager. And we should know the true purpose of money. This guy had a light bulb moment. The light bulb went on. He, went, he realized, you know, because the manager, remember, he commended him for this, what seemed to be dishonest, but he was going to fire him before because he was wasting his wealth. So why would the manager want to, or why would the, the uh, owner, the, the master, want to fire him before, but then commend him when he began acting this way? It's because he realized, oh, my manager finally gets it. He didn't get it before. He was just wasting my money. But at least now I can commend him because I see that he's had the light bulb moment. He's realized what money is actually for. Money is for preparing for the future when it's invested wisely. And so we invest that way. Let me explain it this way. Let me, let me talk it to you this way. It's like going to Las Vegas. When you go to Las Vegas, they're happy when you win because usually when you win, they comp you a stay in the hotel room and they 
tell you to stay for a week, and they want you to stay around, because as long as you stay in Las Vegas, it doesn't matter how much you win, you end up spending it back in Las Vegas, right? The money never actually leaves Las Vegas, right? But the secret to Las Vegas, as everybody sort of fantasizes about, is winning and then being wise enough to get out of Vegas with the money that you won. You know how often that happens? Never. Okay? But that's the fantasy, that you'll go to Vegas, you'll win $10 million, and then you'll get out of Vegas with the money. But that's not how Las Vegas works. But the world is the same, right? We watch our parents, we go to school, we learn a skill, we get an understanding of the economy. Essentially, we learn how to play the world's money games, and the world pays us out every couple weeks for most people. And we get paid out to greater or lesser degrees, but the world pays out, and we have this check. But it's like Vegas, the money We just stupidly invest it back into the world again. The world just gets their money back. We'd never get the reward out of Vegas because the world pays out and we keep paying it back to the world. So the secret here, the light bulb moment for the manager was trick the world out of their money. Let the world pay you its worldly money and then use that money for rewards in heaven. Don't let the world get their money back. Use the money for the payoff that's in heaven. Use it for ministry. Use it for the gospel. Use it to see the fruit that can abound to your credit. Use it to win friends that will welcome you into heaven because they heard the gospel or they matured in Christ through the giving of your worldly pay to the ministry. And so at a practical level, we need to learn to use money practically. Money is a currency of mercy. It's a currency of protection and care for people in need. You know, and that starts with our own families. I just want to touch on this. God doesn't ask us to raise our children in a cold shack in the woods, right? God doesn't ask us to skimp on the nourishment or education or protection of our children or anyone else. God is not calling us to a life of poverty. It says in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own family, he has denied the faith and was worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy says it's our job to provide for our families. God has provided. It's our job to care and protect and nourish and see our families flourish. And then extending that, this extends to the church. The church is to protect and shelter and feed and care for its members and see its members flourish. Poverty is not God's desire for his church. And that extends to the community as well. Money is practical. We use it practically. We have to learn to use it practically and effectively. But we also need to be constantly aware of money's power. The abuse of money is not God's desire for the church either. Money is not the way we keep score. Money is not a symbolic of anybody's worth. It doesn't command any preferential treatment. It doesn't influence decisions. Money is power. Money is influence. Money as a personal worth is a powerful, powerful idol that can attract us. And so we have to be cautious. As we use money practically, we have to be cautious that we don't set money up as a false sense of security or a false thing to worship ahead of God. You can get addicted to money easily. And here's news. Churches can get addicted to money too, right? And we have to be careful as a church that we don't get addicted to money, that we can never let money become an idol that we trust in more than God because we will always trust God more than our money. But instead, you and I need to be like the shrewd steward in Luke 16. We need to have that light bulb moment when the steward, the manager of the resources, finally realized the real value of money. Our employment here on earth is temporary. We're only here for a short time. 
The master is returning, and when he returns, we're fired from this job. And we only have these resources for a little bit of time. So how are we going to use these resources? Are we going to use them and just pour them back into the world to just cycle through the same unrighteous wealth that it always is and not accomplish anything for us where moth destroys and rust? Or are we going to be smart and use this worldly money that the world keeps paying out to us to invest in heaven, to invest in eternal security, to invest in the ministry, the fruit of ministry, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that when we are fired from this job and we go to our next job, there'll be many friends to welcome us out of the resources that we used for ministry. So practical examples. First of all, I just want to give praise for the faithful giving of the past. Right? The very fact that we have a building to worship in, the fact that ministry is happening today is because people that aren't even here were faithfully giving before we showed up. Right? And so there is a heritage, there is a legacy of ministry that's here that we get blessed by, that we are the fruit of, that is accumulated to their account. And they're not here because they're passed away, they've already moved on to that next job, or they're not here because they're somewhere else, they're in Florida, or they're across town, whatever. But those people that were here, they gave faithfully, and the fruit of ministry here is abounding to their credit. So we praise God for the generations that came before to give so that there's a fruit of ministry here. Amen? Amen. Then I want to celebrate the reality of the ministry that we do have today, that we have missions, we have the shepherd's table, we have the different support networks, we have ministries that reach out into the community, we have counseling that goes on. Like There's ministry going on today that's all paid for by the generosity, the heartfelt giving, careful giving, and the shrewd management of the people and the ministers in this church. And the fruit of that ministry, just like Paul said, abounds to your credit. And so we continue to invest, we continue to be shrewd managers and invest worldly money into spiritual, fruitful benefits. And just remember that that is a good thing, that in God's economy, there are eternal rewards, heavenly treasures. And then we think about the future, and we begin to maybe have this light bulb moment where we think about the future, and we think, how are we going to invest in the future? And where is our money going to go? And where are we going to, as, per, as families, how do we get together and think about how we are going to invest our money? And how are we going to invest in what is going on? And then how is, are we as a church family going to invest in the community to see that fruit that abounds to our credit? Vision for new ways to invest in the kingdom. New campaigns to get the gospel into the community. New investments into people's lives. Increasing the support of our existing partners. Building capital projects in the community that are needed in order to love people as God loved them. Supporting people who are loving God as God loved them. You know, even starting out with just buying some groceries and showing hospitality, as we talked about last week. And caring for the most vulnerable in our community. And reaching out in the most creative ways, because it's not just about the poor but reaching out in the most creative ways to people who don't even think they need God. You know, maybe to the wealthy, maybe to the well-established, maybe to the people who think they have everything that they need, but they don't yet because they don't have Jesus. And we have to have creative ways to reach out our message to them. 
and engage them in the gospel because they're vulnerable spiritually. You know, a heritage fund that plans for the future and a way to keep our money working for us long term. And, you know, so there's short term, there's long term, there's present term spending. You know, the whole area of money management needs wise stewards. And that's my prayer for the church, that in our individual families, we would be wise stewards, that our light bulb moment would go off and we'd realize there's a better place to invest. And then as a church, that we would continue to be wise stewards. And praise God for the fruit that comes out of the ministry that's supplied by the people who bring the spirit, the oil, and bring the provision, bring the bread into the tabernacle so that we can do ministry. So as a church, that's my prayer, that we'll be shrewd managers, that we'll put our offerings to work for the kingdom. We're going to store up heavenly treasures, future rewards, so that we'll have many friends that welcome us into glory. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks this morning that you have been faithful to this church and that you have, down through the decades, left a heritage of faithful givers. That we stand on the shoulders and we stand even in the very building of people who gave faithfully so that we would have no mortgage, no debt, a balance sheet that's healthy and opportunity, resources overflowing to do ministry, a wealth of opportunity. So, Father, make us wise that we continue to give as families, that we continue to invest in your kingdom and build up those heavenly rewards, that we make ourselves aware of how your economy works and submit to it. And then as a church, Lord, I pray that we would just be a blessing to this community, that we would be generous with our partners, that we would uh, plan carefully to the most creative and effective ways of reaching the gospel out to people and that we would care for each other well. Father, there are just so many blessings that you've poured out on us. Help us to acknowledge that our prayers and our alms and our givings rise up to you as a sweet fragrance, as an incense to you, and that as you receive that incense, you pour out blessing on us and we store for ourselves rewards in your heavenly kingdom. Thank you, God, for your economy, so much better than ours, so much more secure. We give you praise for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.